Welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John and Melison IV. Today we're talking with engineer Jaredison Foles. On this episode, we're talking New York naked musicians and everything in between. We take a street level, so I can't say it didn't warn you. Let's go, folks. How's New York looking? Um, you you know it's kind of funny. There's there's ways that it looks relatively normal in moments, depending on where you are and and what's happening at what any particular given time. Then there's other moments where it's like, yo, where the fuck is everybody, and where the fuck is everything, and. That is what is indicative of the time that we're living through at the moment. You know, that's it, it's it's and it, and for me, it's not that you never go through New York City when things can be empty or devoid of people, right? It's just that usually those are only at certain times at night. But um, it's funny. I was in Lower Manhattan for a bit yesterday yesterday being uh yeah wednesday so i was there for a little bit in the i'm gonna say about the early afternoon and it was like being there on a early sunday morning and there's nobody around oh it's highly strange it's highly strange but uh the lack of traffic is nice. I can see that. I haven't been really up there. I haven't been up there since 2009, I think, right? For a brief minute. But I remember, like, it was kind of, I was on the cusp of the two New York, so to speak. The pre-9-11 New York and the post-9-11 New York, right? In vastly different places. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't, you know, the thing that strikes me most about pre-9-11 as opposed to post-9-11 are gas prices. Other than that, um, well, gas prices and the economy itself, but not necessarily the movement of people. I mean, people have obviously changed in all that time. You know, we're talking almost, you know, just about to be 20 years. Um, and, you know, culture has changed a bit. Um, there's more people here now that are not originally from New York than it was back then. But there's so many ways that things are similar. I can't say the same. I can't, but you know, and the things that are drastically different to me aren't necessarily all that drastic. Hmm. I guess that's the funny thing. It, it's, you know, it's, um, the, these things, a lot of the changes are more attached to something that you would have found in the past anyway. And so it might look a little bit different, but it's really not far whatsoever. Um, but, you know, that all depends on who you are, what you were doing, how you see it, of course. But that's just how it strikes me. No, but when the Gaijin, you know what I mean, brought their... Um other things that like not have a cupcake stand where that wasn't there beforehand though. Well, no, see, that's the thing though. It's see that, see, that's one of those things that to me is not that far different. It's just a matter of who's doing it 
and what it looks like. But, you know, the way I think of it is I don't own it, so what the fuck? But, you know, and, but, and there's also the thing that I noticed, and I've always noticed this in particular with music. As people get older, they often tend to act as if what they're witnessing is so far different and worse than what they were doing when they were at that particular age or time or whatever. And it's something I've always tried to remind myself to not fall into as best as I can. You know, try to take it for what it is and really think about what you had going on. Now, some things really are better, some things really are worse, right? Um, I think what's interesting, like I said, more than anything else, is that there are more people who are not from here than there were before. Um, but we've always kind of had that. But I think what's different historically in the American lexicon is that even where you had that, what we're experiencing now are more people who've never been, who've never had an urban environment in their experience whatsoever. So they're literally trying to bring their small townness into a place like New York City. Now that's particularly different. And a lot of the conflict I see is sort of based around that. A lot of people who come here and they think, well, this New York should be like this, or things should be like this, or people should be like this. And they forget, yo, motherfucker, you're in a city. You're in the city. We all live here together. And so a lot of these things are going to have to be negotiated. It's not going to be what you think it should be. You can throw that shit out the window or take your ass back to your little quiet town because you're not in a quiet place. So, you know, that part is different in my experience. Um, but, you know, the fact that somebody opened up some little donut shop in a neighborhood where they wouldn't have opened it up before. And you know what? That's just another level of the same old gentrification that always exists in New York City. It, it literally always exists here. Um, and it's just a matter of who's doing the gentrifying, right? Oh, yeah. So back in 2000, we had an influx of people here um, from D.C., from Ohio, from Virginia. Um, a lot of them were not white people. And a lot of them were people who upset the culture balance, even though they looked very much like the people who were here. Now, understand I'm talking about the tail end or what they what people suggest was the tail end of the crack crisis. So you had sometimes the terms are really weird for me. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, they use them very easily to, you know, differentiate people. I, I don't, I don't differentiate people so much. Um, they like to do that to themselves, but I'll go ahead and do some. So, Maybe some terms anyway. So people who find themselves to be more educated, for example, more, let's say, 
I guess woke is not a bad term to use, but nobody was using that term back then, for example. But a lot of them moved into places like Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights and Fort Greene, and they upset the balance of what was already here. Now, everybody wasn't all cracked out, right? That just wasn't what was going on. Everybody here weren't black and poor. Um, as a matter of fact, there were a lot of black people who were pretty damn well-to-do and doing all right. But the neighborhood didn't necessarily look that way optically. And the reality is, in any neighborhood in the city of New York, even on the Upper West Side, you can find some strung out white kid laying on the fucking street or going back and forth. The only thing is, people are programmed to look at that white boy and think, oh my God. And they'll look at somebody who's, you know, somebody else that might be living a, a similar experience or going through a similar tragedy, and their mind will act like that's expected. Right? So that that's the thing. And I and I and I guess for me, I've been here long enough and I've been around enough of it all to have seen a lot of it. Um, so my view of it doesn't really, I guess, go to what the, the normal assumptions are about it. You know, um, I mean, I'm not denying that, you know, there are things that are different, right? Um, but how much of it is really different and the ones who notice the difference what are they really noticing? Because if they notice that that's different, then you didn't notice what, what all this shit that was going on well before all this happened? Where were you? That's that's kind of how it strikes me when people often speak to it. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of why I make the music I make. <laughs> it's just like, um, so I don't know what you were paying attention to, but this is the way it's hitting me, and I need to kind of put something out there that relates to that view of it and not just this small little cookie cut window of it because uh, you know the timeline doesn't really break it's all concurrent that's what I wanted to ask you about so how did the band Sweet Fuzzy Itsy Bitsy and Shrine for the Black Madonna come about huh Okay, that's a pretty crazy story. So I got time to fill, dude. Yeah, no doubt. Um, all right, Shrine for the Black Madonna. How did that start? Okay, that that literally started in 2000. Um, I'm trying to think of if I'm trying to see if I can remember a specific date, but I'll tell you what happened. Okay. I had just opened the studio. Like, literally just opened a, a couple of months before and was looking for clients. And I'm going through the paper because, you know, um, this stuff is a job. So, you know, I'm sort of going through the newspaper at the time, you know, in the Village Voice and going through, you know, uh, classified ads, seeing who I could cold call. 
looking for people to cold call to say, hey, saw your ad, saw you're looking for somebody that may not necessarily be me, right? Because a lot of people weren't necessarily looking for a studio. They were looking for a guitar player or they were looking for bandmates. But I wasn't looking to offer bandmates. You know, I'd already had bands and stuff like that. I was looking to generate business for my studio, for my new endeavor. So I would cold call people and, or at least I would study the ads. I would find somebody. I would, if there was a link to their stuff, I would check out their stuff um, online and listen to it. And if I liked it, then I would call them and pitch them to record them. Hmm. You know, um, bring them in the studio, say, hey, I'll produce your stuff. I charge this much. Here's my studio. Here's my experience. This is what I do. I'll do it better than anybody else. Come to me. And I ran across this really, really interesting ad in the way that it was written. And it really struck me because it kind of hit me as something I felt I would have written if I was looking for band members at the time. Um, and it said, oh, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was really specific. Um, and it meant, and, but it was also, it was specific, but it was really metaphorical. And it was kind of speaking of rage and revolution. And it really hit me. And I said, oh, shit, the fuck is this? So I actually, without even listening to it, well, listen to whatever they had in the link. Actually, they didn't have any music in the link. So I called it. And it was Brian, and we talked for a bit, and we talked over our influences, and he came over like a day or two later. Hmm. And I'll never forget, because I was really fucking annoyed. He came in, and instead of us, now again, remember, my mentality is I'm trying to turn this into a client. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking to join a band. I'd already had a band for a long time, a really successful one, Gallify Act. I wasn't necessarily looking to be in another band, at least not at that particular point or moment. And he came in, and he instantly starts showing me these songs of his. And I found that really kind of annoying and, like, like, uh, like really self-involved. <laughs> I can see that, like... I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm saying that's how it just struck me, oh, you yeah. know? But, you know, I tend to be patient a little bit sometimes. And so I just said to myself, let me just see where this is going. And my um, my girlfriend at the time was here. And she caught it too, but she looked at me and she was just like, give it a minute, let's just see where this is going. And uh, we got into it, and it wasn't bad. It was all right. It's interesting. Um... What I liked about it is that it didn't remind me of anything else because those are the kind of things I like. I don't like doing or being involved in anything that smacks of something else that already exists or that somebody else already did. I'm not here on this planet to do anything that anybody else has done. I don't care how great they were, whatever their history is, a hey, goony goo goo for them, whatever, fuck that. I'm here to do something completely, completely different as much as possible. And this smacked of that and kind of, you know, definitely connected to some of the things that I 
already think and do and write conceptually and sonically. So we at least agreed that we get together again. So we got together a few times and uh, worked on some of his songs. Um, I heard his songs very differently than he did. Um, that's one of the things I guess that uh, makes me me, I suppose. Yeah. And um, and so I kind of revamped them a little bit. I did not 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 a lot, not deeply. I just changed like the rhythm of them a little bit. You know, that beat shouldn't fall in the one and three. It should fall in the two and the four and stuff like that or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he dug it, and we went from there. Um, but all the while, I'm working on my own stuff. And at the time, I hadn't presented that to him at all. Because like I said, I'm still thinking that somehow I'm going to work this into being a client, not me being in this dude's group. And it wasn't necessarily a group. It was just him. And him coming and doing work in my spot. Really? That's that's all it was, was just me and Brian Tate. That was it. It wasn't, it wasn't a band. It was just two people. Whoa, 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 whoa. Brian? Yeah, Brian Tate. As in Greg Tate's brother. Greg Tate's brother, right. My, my dad went to high school with Greg Tate. Get out of town. I didn't realize it was only two people in that band, though. I always thought it was like an ensemble of people and shit. Well, well okay, though. No, but, but see, that's how we started. Right? And, um, so this, and so here's the thing. So I'm working on some stuff of my own. And he comes in one night. And I'm working on it, and he he hears it, and that is what ended up being the song "Runners," which is on, it's actually on our first EP, and it's on one of the double, the one of the double, it's one of the tracks on the double album that we put out. And um, he said, "What is that?" And I said, "Oh, that's something I'm working on. Play that again. Play that again." And I'm like, "Nah, son, that's not for you." <laughs> That's how I, I'm still like that to this day. I'm like, that's not, that's not for you. That's not for you. And, um, yo, come on, don't do that to me. I was like, what are we, what are, what are, what are, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Is that, is that what are we doing here? And so, technically, the band, at least in my mind, really started in that moment when I decided, all right, let's, you know, I'll, you know, I'll work on this. I'm, I'm, this is my thing, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll open up. I'll, you know, see what you got here, whatever. Because right now it's just me, and I'm at where I'm at with it. And why not? This could be you no know, serendipitous moment, and it was. Um, now we went ahead and we wrote and recorded um that first EP, that first five song EP, "Time Will Make You Mine." And that was just the two of us. So, in that sense, there wasn't really a band yet. It really was just the two of us. As a matter of fact, we created um, a, a company, sort of, as one as the production name for it. We created a production name for it called Two Face God. So that was the two of us at the time. Um, and from there, um, we did say, okay, well, obviously we got this now. We need to put together a band. Now, we recorded it, 
and at the time there wasn't enough technology for the way I was recording to really make this what I wanted it to be or what either one of us wanted it to be. Um, but it was just the two of us. Ryan's on vocals. I'm doing all the programming and the playing. So I'm playing guitar, um, playing bass, and programming the drums, which at the time the drum programming was in my was horrible. But it was what we had. And um, I'm definitely a believer in using what you got. And if it ain't necessarily great, well, you make it as great as you can make it, and you utilize the powers of marketing that exist until you can get to the next thing. And so being in New York, the power of marketing was the fact that we were putting out anything at all. If you could put out a product, it may not be a great product, but you got the power to put out a product in and of itself will attract people and hopefully they'll kind of hold on a bit until you make something a little bit better. We're not building airplanes or cars, we're just making music. So you can take those kind of liberties, at least at the time, a little bit. Right? Especially being black and making what we're making. Um, so from there we started auditioning people and we decided, okay, let's get ourselves a bassist first. So uh, we went through a number of people, and the f person that we ended up with on bass was our boy Tom Mariah from um, Israel. And he became our bassist, and he uh, learned the stuff, and we did a lot together. And just about the time that we started auditioning drummers, um, he had to bolt back to Israel. But we figured he'd be back. Um, but he was struggling financially, wasn't getting a lot of gigs here. Um, this was, I guess at this point, this must have been just after 9-11. We started all this in about, Brian and I started this in about February of 2000. Um, from the time where he first came, you know, into here. And we're working on this and doing what we're doing. Then again, I'm on a, I, I think 2000, but it might have been 2001. And so it might have been February 2001 when we started all this. Um, so we're additional drummers, and we actually got this guy from Italy. I can't remember his name. And I'll tell you why in a moment, or it'll become obvious. We got this guy, we settled this dude from Italy. And for some reason, he thought that we needed to rewrite all the music. Now, I think to a certain degree, this is... Um, bigotry and racism come in a lot of different forms. It's not always overtly rude. And it's not necessarily always meant to be bigoted. And I think that's what some people don't understand about whether when, when they might be hit with that tag. You know, I'm not racist, I'm not bigoted. But they don't necessarily understand what their behavior is or their method of thinking. And sometimes they're not that. Sometimes they're just dicks. But, you know, 
you can be a dick and do something bigoted and not necessarily have a bigoted intent because it's not judged by intention, it's judged by your act. So we audition a lot of people and many of them would just for whatever reason come in and then start telling us what was wrong with our music. Excuse me? Or telling us how it should be played. Oh, hell fucking yeah. It's just, you know, these are professionals, man. So a lot of people think that you know, some people think that their partners just because they play an instrument and they're coming into your thing and they think that makes them an instant partner in what's happening. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong per se, right? But I'm just saying that this is what human beings do. Um, some of them think that if you're not making something that exists in a specific paradigm that they understand, and that the world understands sonically, compositionally, it doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard on radio. So you must be doing something wrong. Some people go through that. Some people can't believe that these are two black men putting this together that sounds the way it sounds. You know, some people would sometimes come in there and say, who, who, who put this together? Who wrote this? We did. Wow. Uh, so what label do you have? It's my label. I have the label. It's me. World of your recordings. You don't have it. Where'd you get all this gear from? None of your fucking business where the fuck you got all this shit from. What's wrong with you? That is invasive. <laughs> but, but we get it through all sorts of shit. I mean, just, you know. So, here comes this dude from Italy. And he seems cool. He seems crazy in a way that's like, alright, we, let's, let's see what's up with this dude. But he wanted to come in and rewrite everything. Now, like I said, I'm patient. I, I can be open. So even though I have very specific ideas and I have a plan already, I'm always a little bit open when somebody makes a suggestion because I know I don't know everything and I want to see where this can go. So he comes in. For some reason, this dude takes off all his fucking clothes, Jay. <laughs> he did what now? <laughs> he comes into the studio. He takes off all his clothes. I mean, he gets down into like his his swim trunks. I'm like, <laughs> the fuck? The fuck is you doing? Hey, man, we we going to work, right? Yeah, we going to work. I don't know what the fuck you working on, son. But you just, I mean, what's up? He said, no, man, I got you to get comfortable. I want you to get a uh, word. I. You good? You right? Wait to be. I cool. So we start working on this stuff, and he wants to literally rewrite the songs. I'm like, dude, we're not gonna fuck. I'm thinking you got suggestions. We're not gonna fucking rewrite the songs. You're gonna learn the songs, and as you learn, and I and he wants to rent them before he even learns them. Okay, that's let's let's just get that off the bat. So now I got this. Six five naked Italian white man in my studio <laughs> trying to rewrite shit that he doesn't even understand what it is to begin with. And so somehow I convinced him, okay, we're not going to do that. Unless you want to do, I'm not wasting my time doing that shit. We can work out this stuff in Germany right now. Get behind the drums. And it's just me and him doing this. Brian's not even in the room. So I'm working out all the musicians. Next day, I call Brian. I tell him this shit. 
I was like, yo, dude, this ain't gonna fucking work. He was like, he did what? I said, yeah, man. Come on. This ain't... This ain't it. Now, ironically, we picked him over this young lady from Switzerland who seemed pretty good. She seemed really wound up, though. <laughs> and, um... After we booted him, I mean, he was only around for a day or two. I so think it's one day too many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no shit. If some dude starts stripping in my in my rehearsal space, like, get the fuck out of here! This ain't boring. Listen, see, it's it's the music business. You gotta be a little patient. Okay, good point. <laughs> Trust me, I'm telling you. That's true. If, if you if you just shove away all the crazies, you'll miss the whole point of being in this business. Yeah. Because that's really what the point is of being in this business. It ain't the money, and it ain't fame, and it ain't glory. Fuck it's no. to see all this crazy ass shit yes. that you would never see otherwise. <laughs> that's that's really that's really it. And so, yeah. and you know what? I gotta say, I've definitely, I've definitely been blessed for that patience because I can't tell you how many women I've been blessed to have in the studio. Who just for whatever reason decided that they want to run around naked while doing their stuff, and it wasn't sexual, <laughs> right? They just and they felt safe enough and comfortable enough in this place around me to know that they could do that, and people would still be focusing on work and they wouldn't be harassed. So I'm blessed, and I got to enjoy the visuals of it because they were they were pretty banging. Hey. I said. I just had to, all I had to do was keep my mouth shut, focus forward, and do the work. It don't point. Right? And I want to I wanna say that for anybody listening. All you got to do 99% of the time is shut the fuck up, chew with your mouth closed, focus forward, <laughs> and do your fucking work. That's all you have to do. You don't have to make mention of what you're seeing. You don't have to all of a sudden involve yourself where you don't need to be involved. If you just be quiet and be cool, you will receive all the gifts and knowledge of the universe. Stop, listen, and play your fucking position. Yeah, so that's Shrine. So we brought in Medit, Medit Keller, who ended up being with us for 14 years. But ironically, we lost Tom. Just get Israel. At the time, Meta and Tom never got to play together. So we had a bassist. He had to leave. We got a drummer. Now we got no bassist. So we ended up finding a cellist. And um, he actually played bass for us. And our boy Trevor Exter, fantastic cellist and vocalist. Um, and he played bass for us. And so he played bass for us at the very first show that we played live, which was at CB's Gallery. And that was, I want to say that was sometime in July 
of maybe not in July of 2002. No, that wouldn't be July of 2002. Um, but I think it was sometime in 2002. It might have been in the spring. I don't remember exactly the date. Um, but that was our first live gig. Um, Brian wore some crazy white suit, like if he was um, John Travolta. I remember that because I got a picture of it, like not a few feet away from me, actually, at the moment, ironically. I can actually imagine him like Saturday Night Fever style and shit. Yeah, I know, right? It's, um... Yeah, it's a... Uh, it look at it, it's kind of it, it's kind of like that. Um, and then ironically, so we played that one gig with Trevor on bass, and then ironically, um, Tom came back for a few days. And so Tom played three gigs with us over a week um, around the 4th of July. And it was kind of crazy because for me, it was the first time that I had been around World Trade since, actually the second time, I guess, since 9-11 happened. Um, you know, the significance of that for me was I used to work down there. I used to work at 26 Broadway. And I used to often be in the, there was a bar um, on one of the lower levels of World Trade, I think building two, that used to do $1 drafts after work. So you can get, you know, these big, huge beers for a buck. And um, when the, the day that it happened, I was actually working for Electro Harmonics. Uh, and they had just moved to Queens a month before, ironically. Um, so I had gone down there once in the immediate aftermath. I had taken pictures up close of the frame that was still remaining of the towers. Um, but I don't, I unfortunately don't have those pictures now. Um, and, um, but after that, I hadn't been back down there until we did these gigs. And, um, we did a gig at the Orange Room. Um, off of Church Avenue, and I don't know. It's this this on the center block is this strip club down there near uh, World Trade, and that was the first gig that Tom actually played with Medic, and so that was really the original band. Um. But then that didn't last too long. Um, Tom went back to Israel again. And that same night that we played that gig, a boy of mine's band played with us, and he had this bass player that was really dope. Um, and I had his number, and I ended up calling him up. That was Jarris Odoms, Jazz. And Jazz joined up with us, and Jazz has been playing with us damn near ever since. So that's trying for the Black Madonna. So now, sweet, fuzzy, itsy, bitsy. Because that's kind of weird. So, trying for the Black Madonna, we're doing our thing. We 
here together for about seven years, and we get to a point where things look like they're going to really, they're starting to really kind of blow up for us, because of course, at the same time, we're not just playing gigs. Brian's actually booking shows, producing shows. I'm producing shows. So, you know, we're doing things that involve other people as well, while at the same time, you know, playing in this band together. Um, but tensions were high for a lot of reasons. I won't get into all the details. Um, but we essentially parted ways um, in about 2000, 2007, 2008. And um, it wasn't expected. Um, but I think it wasn't necessarily surprising, and I think in the end it really was a blessed event. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that could have happened and should have happened. Um, there's there's definitely a big cruise ship that we missed out on, I think. Um, but I think for myself, it was a real blessing because it open the door for me to do something that I, I think deep down I really wanted to be doing anyway. Um, so I'm always working on music, and I had a bunch of stuff, but I hadn't had it quite formed. And so this kind of allowed me to really focus on that exclusively without any distraction of anybody else or anything else, really. Um, and it was so fun. It was a real transitional time, too. So, so many things were starting to change. Um, the nature of venues in New York City was starting to change in a way that I didn't like. So, I pulled back. So, you know, I have um, World Eater Recordings, which is the studio and production company. And I had another arm of the company called World Eater Recordings Presents, which would do all the live stuff and produce the live shows and things like that. So, I, at the time, I was um, doing venues in, I think I was only doing two venues. I was doing Sputnik in Brooklyn, and I was doing M15 in Manhattan. I think I had a couple other places that I was doing on and off, but those are the two steady places that I was focused on. Um, but Sputnik was about to completely change their whole thing. And while M15 was good, actually it was very good. Both places were really good. They were really great, actually. Um, but the energy in the city was changing. And that included real estate. And one thing about producing shows that I, I'm still attached to, I've never been a person that's just interested in... In just you know a bunch of bands in a bar. That's never been my thing because I don't think that really inspires people. Um, and I'm not talking about just as a matter of making money. What I'm talking about is as a matter of having a sense that people are part of something and doing something that's bigger than themselves. And I think that that's very important when it comes to putting on these things. In particular, because the work in reality is very hard to do, and materially, 
you really don't get very much from it. And if you're going to choose to deal with that kind of reality, then there has to be something greater that you're reaching for. And for me, that's always been influencing people. And in particular, not exclusively, but in particular black people, especially with the kind of music I make, the kind of sounds I make, the kind of concepts I write about, um, the kind of things that I speak about openly and politically, especially if anybody follows me on Twitter or Facebook or my writings on Tumblr or things like that. Um, and you know, the music is very much a vehicle for these messages. And so are the shows. So, you know, it should always feel like it's a show, not just just showed up at this bar. We're going to hear some gigs and play a song and the band has to literally fight to hold people's attention because people don't really give a fuck. I'm not into just allow, just stepping into situations where people just don't give a fuck. I believe in that at a minimum of giving myself the best that I can acquire. And I guarantee that that's not incumbent upon what anybody else thinks is the best. Some people will think that's arrogant or whatever, and hey, that's fine, that's great, because I expect everything. I literally expect everything. And some people don't expect everything. They just want to... Now, that doesn't mean that you ignore other people or that other people aren't important, right? I don't live in that place. But when I'm in an endeavor and I'm working for something, I expect everything. And that even means more than the top person gets. Fuck the top person. I'm trying to get more than that. I don't know who that is. I don't know what they want or what they got. That's their problem, right? It may not even match mine anyway. Who knows? Who cares? It's not just, you know, that's, that's on them. So that's the way I see these things. And the way that things were starting to go down in New York real estate wise were they were making the venues that I was in were built for, they weren't necessarily huge, but what they were, where they were well-built, well-production-focused spaces where you could put on a really good show that really captured and demanded people's attention. You could sell tickets. You can make money. You can make money for the bands, or at least give them a good opportunity to make money. Nobody booked a show with me thinking that they were just playing a show for free. That's bullshit. This is all work. You're supposed to be making money for your work. If you end up not getting any money at the end of the night, that's one thing. But you don't go into it thinking that you're not going to make any money. That's crazy. Why would you do that? Right? And, um, and unfortunately, too many people do that for that trading for that exposure shit. I'm still waiting to see somebody take exposure to the electric company to pay their bills. Um, but the real estate folks are really starting to change these venues around, making them smaller, not putting any real equipment sound-wise, really kind of skimping on this shit, which, you know, unfortunately, a lot of things 
in the society do that. They do it with film. Um, they do it in a lot of areas. And uh, it's really caused a big problem. And unfortunately, musicians um, have been put in a situation where they either have to accept it or not play. Well, my choice was twofold. Was one, I won't be playing as much, if at all. Number two, I'm not going to be producing events in places like this. Number one, the bands I book will be able to make any money, and these are not just any acts. These acts need to make money. They tour, they do their stuff, or they're on their way to touring, or they're signed, or they're independent in making money. And if they don't make any money, I don't make any money. And if I'm making money and they're not making money, but the bar is making money, what kind of shit is that? We're not here to just, like, you know, provide a soundscape for the plantation. Fuck that shit. That's not how I roll. That's a big problem here in the area. Yeah, but, you know, but part of it, and it's, it's a big problem across the United States, believe me. It's, it's not the New York thing. It's just that here in New York, there's enough people in general to be able to fight and push back on that sort of thing. At least it was. Now, that's one thing that's changed to a certain degree is not the fact that there are industrialists who do that shit. What's changed is that there is the attitude of the people who are here because people now just, at least they have up until now, are more likely to accept that kind of shit. And me and the people that I came up with, especially here in New York City, we are not the accepting type of people. And maybe there are some elements in the world that would fuck that we're supposed to be the accepting type of people. But they were found to be very, very wrong. <laughs> you know, we were the kind of people who were going to make something happen for ourselves by hook or by crook. And, you know, I'm sure our point of view is a little bit different than other people might expect. Um confident our morality or our perceived morality is something different than people might expect. And I'm not going to get into a big thing of explaining that um, for listeners. Um, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but I will say that I and others were blessed because of it because it kept us from dealing with a whole bunch of BS. And the BS that we did have to deal with um, we were able to keep it light or just make a different decision. And so the decision I made was that I'm not going to provide this service. I'm just not going to, you know, I'll focus, I got my studio, I'll focus on that. Um, but I'd also focus primarily on recording because I think that the one thing that is really, really lacking overall for independent black musicians, whatever genre they make, but in particular for the so-called rock ones, is documentation of what they're doing and distribution of what they're doing. To me, this entire thing, the, the linchpin of this entire thing are records or recordings, whatever you want to call it, it's one of the reasons why I call my company World Eater Recordings, not records, recordings. 
because it's not limited to just audio. Um, and the distribution of those items by hook or by crook. Um, I'm not look. I've never been one to look for fame or attention. I have a much more specific agenda than that, and I do have my own agenda. So if anybody's listening and they think that you know, um, you know, I avoid people who have their own agenda stuff like that's why I can tell you I'm one of those dudes. I'm a motherfucker with his own agenda. And fucking move it. I'm not. I'm not doing it for nothing, and I expect something out of it. And I expect a lot out of it. And I expect a lot out of the people around it. And I expect them to put a lot into it because this shit is time-consuming. And it's a lot of work. And it's real. It's a job. And it's a job that most people choose. So, you know, you got to be particular. Well, you don't have to be. That's up to what people want, right? But I have to be particular about what I'm writing, what it sounds like, what it seems like, you know, and what people decide with of it once it's out there, that's on them. But before it gets to that point, I gotta have uh I gotta I gotta have some very specific direction with that. So long story short about sweet fuzzy itsy bitsy, that's where I well, actually, no. It's not going to be a. It's not going to be long story short. It's going to be a little bit longer, actually. Um, so that's where my head was at the time, and I started putting together some stuff, not really knowing what I was going to do with it, or what its purpose was entirely. I was just focused on writing a certain kind of way, and on recording it a certain kind of way, and it was only me. It wasn't a band. It was just me. Um, vocals, guitar, bass, um, program drums, but everything else is played. Um, horns, because for some reason at the time, I heard horns in stuff that was more or less, I'll say, New York City hardcore derivative type sound. But I heard horns in it. Um, and the girl I was dating at the time, different girl from where I was dating when I started, when we started Shrine, um, was getting on my fucking nerves. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's funny when you're, when your face isn't all over TV, let me say this. For the longest time, I didn't do anything except music. And New York City has always been a blessed thing when it comes to that. I don't know if I could have necessarily done this in too many other places in the United States where I could live entirely off of making music, running the studio, and producing shows. That was my trifecta. I was, I was playing gigs and making my own music. Bands would come into the studio and I would record them or they would rehearse. And I would produce shows that sometimes I would play, but rarely, um, with other bands. Some, some of them were really big shows. Some of them were just club dates, but at least they were clubs that um, actually 
like I said before, presented like a real event kind of, you know, atmosphere. And that's how I was living and paying my bills, thankfully. And in the midst of this, I met this young lady. She uh, saw Shrine play a few times and stuff like that. I don't know what she thought of it. You know, um, these black people with this white girl on drums playing this rock music. Um, we weren't on BET and we weren't on radio. Well, we've had some bits of radio play. Um, Vernon Reed said something really nice about us once on NPR. Somebody asked him what he was listening to. He said, right now I'm listening to two things. I'm listening to Radiohead, listening to Shrine for the Black Madonna. Nice. That was very nice, but she wouldn't have heard it. And 99% of black people didn't hear it. And 85% of everybody didn't hear it, right? So that's that's the reality of how these things go. Very true. Right? And so here I am dating this black woman who's who's lived a you know a good but relatively normal black life yeah and so and i'm sure people listening are going to understand this so you know you go on a date you meet some new chick what do you do i'm a musician really do you who do you play when you play with anybody i know nope <laughs> that's the best way to put it that's the most honest answer probably not nope Probably not. You know these what? You know this? You know that? Nope. Yeah. Never seen you at CBGBs. Yep. Yep. Hardcore matinee. Nope. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. He probably, oh, yeah, sure. I know why. Luscious Jackson. Like, yeah, I know. See, I know them personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. But do you know? Yeah, you probably don't. Which is fine. I mean, you want to hang out or what? Right? But at some point, that turns into other things in a relationship. You know, she was one of those many people that didn't believe in the reality of what I was or what I was doing because there's no, you know, I'm black and it's not indemnified by me being on TV doing the coon dance for this fucking country. Because that's the reality that a lot of us have to unfortunately exist in. You know, even if I'm making money and you're not having to go in your pocket for anything, the fact that I'm completely living and existing on my own is uncomfortable for you, sis. And this is not criticism of black women. This is criticism of this particular woman, but a lot of us have had this experience, men and women alike. So I just want to just point that out, right? Especially as a performer, you know. So I'm in the midst of trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I've gone through this event already a few times in my life. So it's not really that deep. It's just a matter of process. So here she comes into the room bugging the fuck out of me. Because she already is a non-believer. And, you know, you should change your style or blah, blah, blah. Or you should get this other job and blah, 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 blah. Because what this chick was really trying to do was get somebody to take care of her and pay her bills. And I'm not saying no, no. I'm not saying that as some sort of like little criticism thing. That's specifically what this chick was trying to do. I, I discovered that and understood that a little bit later on, but that's what she was really trying to do. And it wasn't that I didn't know it at the time, but when I decided that, okay, this is going to have to stop, which means stopping you, 
which means getting you out of my life, that eventually came, but that wasn't on this particular day, right? But that definitely came because she was trying to cut into what I was doing, what I was supposed to be doing. And this is one of those days where she was showing an example of that. So I'm trying to lie in the bed quietly and just think about this stuff in process. What am I doing with this music? Where's it going to go? Am I going to market it? Where am I getting money for it? I have some. Is it enough? Do I need that? Do I need to bring in other people? Do I not need to bring in other people? I still have other things I need to mix. How am I going to mix it? How do I want to mix it? Do I want to add other stuff? Do I want to do this? And he's saying, I'm finished. And she's yapping at me. She's yapping at me. She's yapping at me. And I was starting to focus on one particular song that I had been working on that, to me, actually was... I didn't know if it was going to be part of the project. It seemed like it was more of a song that should have been... Um, that I should have offered up television. Something to, you know, um, something to open up a television show with. It really had that kind of sensibility about it. And I'm asking her to leave me alone, but she won't. And she's just yapping at me and yapping at me. And I said, you know what? I wish you would shut the fuck up so I could focus on what I'm trying to focus on so I can get this next thing started. And she said to me, well, you keep saying that, blah, 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 but you know what? You know what you need to do? You need to put, you need to put your mouth where your mouth belongs. What? And I said, what did you say? She said, you need to put your mouth where your mouth belongs. What she was trying to say was put your money where your mouth is. Oh, God. That's what she meant to say, but that's not what she said. She said, put your mouth where your mouth belongs. And I knew where her mind was at, but, but, but that wasn't even what she was focused on. So I said, I need you to get in the booth right now. And she said, what? I said, I need you to get in the booth right now, and I need you to repeat that. I need you to say that. She said, I'm not getting in the booth. I, you know I don't sing. I said, for as much trouble as you caused me, as long as we've been together, you're going to get your motherfucking ass in that man, or we're going to have a fucking Ike and Tina moment, I promise you. Oh, shit. And of course, like an intelligent black woman that she was, who you think you threatened her? She's ready to... I said, listen, you can run all that shit that you want to. I'm not trying to hear you. You know I'm not that kind of person, but I promise you, today will be that day that I will turn the page and I will whip your ass if you don't get in that booth right now. Jesus. <laughs> it was a moment of inspiration. It had to happen right then and there. I could not tolerate any resistance. Sorry. Not today. Not today, goddammit. This is life. Life and death. Get your ass in that booth. And look at me. She looked at me, and I said, listen, I got a beer here, and I got a blunt. She said, well, at least you offered me some goddamn weed or something. Jesus, sitting here, I said, yeah, 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 I'll apologize for it later. Actually, I'm not going to apologize, because you've given me too much trouble in my life. So, <laughs> take this blunt, 
go in the vocal booth, and all you have to do is do what I ask you to do. For once. For once. Please, get in the goddamn booth. And that became the song Where Your Mouth Belongs. And there's a video out for it right now, and it's still on, available on Spotify. And um, no, I did not beat her or anything like that, y'all. I did not put my hands on her. That's not the kind of dude I am. I know. I just want to express to her how critical it was for her to stop getting on my nerves and get in the goddamn booth. And it worked. See, that's the marketing end of things. It's a good story, too, right? And it's the truth. I'm not making it up. That's, I said that shit. I admit it. I said it. You know, she knew where I was coming from. Don't act like y'all ain't never slapped no asses before. Stop it. Just, you know. But that was pretty much uh, the beginning of Sweet Fuzz Gitsy Bitsy. Now, ironically, um, there is a vocalist. Well, the thing about Sweet Fuzz Gitsy Bitsy is what I kind of decided that it wouldn't be um, any one individual other than me. Um, I did bring in a drummer for a couple of songs. That's Barbara. I'm going to say her name wrong. But she was fantastic. Barbara Stamma Populus. I'm sure I said that incorrectly, so please, everybody, forgive me. Barbara, please forgive me for that. Is it a Greek name? It is Greek. Um, she's a fantastic drummer. Um, jazz-focused drummer who I asked her to do things that were not jazz. Um... And she did fantastically. So she plays drums on... She is playing drums on Prayer for the Modern Nation, which I believe is on the second EP. And she plays... Um, I use her beats, her playing throughout the song, but she's straight playing on the beginning of the song of Prayer for the, for the Modern Nation. Um, I also had, uh, Brian Smith, who, um, plays with Meridian Lights now. He's on the first album. He's playing on, what do you know about, no, what's that first song? I'm sitting here forgetting the names of my own damn songs at the moment, because thankfully there's a lot of them. Um... I think it was like a vast catalog, right? I, yeah, I guess so. Um, he's playing on Sweet, Sweet Vengeance, actually. Um, so I guess there have been three or four different drummers um, that I've used for Sweet Fuzzy to Bitsy at times, um, except for songs where I'm actually um, programming drums. And in some places, I've programmed drums and mixed it with live players. Um, and the vocalist, Mark Antoine Montflory, was actually a client who had come in here for, with a band that I used to book. And they came in to record, and the recording went pretty well. But they broke up before the recording ended. 
They had a really crazy manager who really had no business managing anything. She unfortunately was much more about her ego than she was about that band's business. Um, and they eventually peaked it. And he left and he did this project with me. And um, it was it's really interesting because I had planned it to really be an instrumental project for the most part um, because there aren't very many instrumental black rock projects. Ah, you know what? I hate the term black rock. It is redundant. Like Southern rock is redundant too. It, it is redundant because it's ours anyway. And I really don't even like the term rock, to be honest with you. Um, mainly because a lot of the stuff and a lot of the things that a lot of us are making don't seem to fit in that title when compared to what is labeled with that title. It doesn't really matter. It's all semantics anyway, right? But if it doesn't matter, then why use it? I'm, who's here to do things that don't matter? Not me. Right? So, yeah, fuck that. <laughs> so I don't really call it anything, but but it's obvious that um, to a certain degree, if people are listening that's probably where they would place it to some small degree if they had to call it something or they would call it Afropunk, which I've had people interview me and ask me that. And then I have to explain that Afropunk is not a genre. It is a movie <laughs> that I did work on the audio for um, that eventually became a festival that actually all started from a website. How'd you find out about Afropunk? Oh, that's tricky. I feel like that scene of Brown Sugar say, so tell me, what'd you fall in love with hip hop? Well, you know, I, you know, you can't say that how did I find out about Afropunk, right? Because there was no Afropunk. There was a bunch of us here in New York City doing our thing. And we did our thing amongst a whole bunch of other crews and cultures doing their thing because that was the culture here in New York City. You could be at a hardcore show at CB's Matinee at 3 in the afternoon, and then at 8 o'clock at night, you could be seeing Boogie Now Productions in the same day in the same city. And you might even see Sick of It All playing with Boogie Down Productions, which we did, or at least I did. Um, so it's, um, so with that kind of existence and I'll give you a synopsis of my view of it into that existence came James Spooner, who was not from the New York city, you know, scene, but met people and knew people in the New York city scene. And it turned out he was, you know, um, me and Brian went to a show one night at Brownies, used to be on Avenue A, that his sister-in-law at the time, Tamar Colley, was playing. Me and Tamar go, me and T go way, way back. Um, 
one of T's very first gigs in New York City was um, at a place that we used to play a lot called Bond Street Cafe with my band Gamma Fly Acme. And she used to play, in a, she used to sing in a band called Song of Seven. Um, so we go way back, and this had to be at least 10 years before the story I'm telling you now. Um, so we're at Brownies, and it's um, a night where everybody's doing the covers of Bad Brain songs. Real cute. Um, Ryan Bland's playing with his band, um, and T is up there and some other acts. And somebody kind of says this is a fundraiser for James's film. We don't know James. It's a fundraiser for the film. What's the film call? Somebody happened to tell us the name of the film, which at the time was Rock and Roll Nigger. And we said, what? Now, we were surrounded by a bunch of white people when somebody happened to mention what the name of the film was. And I can't deny that I damn near dared any white person to repeat the name of that with me in their presence. People could think that's fair or unfair. New York City punk scene. And it's still New York City, whether it's punk or not. And there are some rules in the scene in New York City, especially on Avenue A and the Lower East Side. And anybody that wants to go up against those rules and try and talk about how we're all in this together or there's no rules in punk would have definitely found out how New York City punk or New York City hardcore or New York City skinheads really get down because we did not play that shit. Ever. Ever. So when I found out what the name of it was, I directly sought out who this James person was. And I found him and I met him and had a conversation with him to say, rock and roll nigger, really? And he explained, I said, stop right there. I know exactly about Patty Smith and the whole deal and what she meant. And who gives a fuck about Patty Smith? Because only Patty Smith and people who gave a fuck about Patty Smith thought that that was valuable. Because I find that there are a lot of so-called wannabe allies, or so they describe themselves, who would try to align themselves with us or with being edgy by promoting something that really is still an insult to us. And they'll try to promote themselves via our pain. And as far as I was concerned, and as far as a lot of us are concerned, Patty Smith was another person that did that. So that doesn't make you cool because you decided to make a record called Rock and Roll Nigger or try and say that women are blah, 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 which, of course, John Lennon was also stupid enough to repeat. And I understand what they think that they meant, right? But you made a mistake. You were wrong. That's not what it meant. And if you bring that crap around us, you're going, to, you're going to find out just how valuable we think that is and how cool you are for it. And people have their opinions, and that's fine. But, you know, that opinion that I just spoke was apparently something that people don't seem to think about, and it wasn't necessarily a popular opinion. And I guess that they felt they could ignore the fact that we were the, that black folks are the source of that, and you're not doing us any favors, and you're not really being our friend. And here's some black people telling it to you. So you can think how you want to think about it. Your, th your thoughts don't mean shit. And so Spooner and I had that discussion. And I let him know flat out. Patty Smith ain't no friend of mine. 
And the fact that I'm black and I happen to be or I appear to be in the same scene or make a similar sound as that person doesn't mean I'm aligned with that person. And I do think that in some way, shape, or form, that has made, that's got me a different perception than a lot of people seem to have in this so-called genre of black rock. You know, we're often mistaken as, you know, or we're often said by our own people, are you trying to be white or this or that or whatever? And I can't deny that there is something in some people that may seem on the surface that they are more aligned with people of another culture than their own. And in some cases, that may be true. And in many cases, there might be good reason for that. But that's not me. I've never been part of this to negate something of my own culture. I've never been part of it in order to align myself with some good white folk for any way, shape, or form. That's not just not how I roll. Um, and I've never been accepting of some sort of false wannabe allied mindset that is really not about allying with what is in my best interest, but instead is about propping up somebody else's shit based on their relationship to me because they can sell it and it looks cool for them. Um, so I had that discussion with Spooner right then and there, at least as best as we could. You know, and I... I think the main thing I said to him at the time was like, listen, you can do what you want. I'm an artist, you're an artist. This is how you see your work. But the thing is, you don't know me, but you've made this movie about me and my life. And I personally don't appreciate it. <laughs> I don't blame you. Right? So, you know, you don't, whatever, whatever that means to you, whatever you can do with that or not do with that, that's entirely up to you, you know, good luck to you and your endeavor, but that's how I feel about it. Just so you know, you know, I'm not one to tell people who I am or what I do, or whatever. That's not, not nothing to do with anything. And it doesn't have, I didn't say this to him, I'm just saying this to you. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really go for people and identify myself because that shouldn't matter anyway. Yeah. Who the fuck am I to them in their life? Right. Yeah. But, if you're claiming to make something about black people and you're using that title about this, well, I've been in this scene for I don't know how long. I don't know who the fuck you are. You're brand new as far as I'm concerned. Just because that person knows you over there, I don't know you. True. That doesn't I have any authority, but what it does mean is that, hey, I'm part of this too, and you're fine with that. And all I can do is tell you, hey, man, that's not cool to me. And I don't know who else might feel this way. They may feel differently or whatever. 
if I got a vote in it, that's my vote. I feel a lot of people feel the same way you do. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, that's not what he named it, right? He changed the name of it. And when we found out what he changed the name to, actually, we were kind of impressed. Because we never had a name for what our community is or was, but our community was large and thriving in New York City. And it wasn't like a secret thing. But at the same time, it wasn't overtly separate from anything else that was going on. Um, when we went out to shows and hung out, there were white people, there were Hispanic people, there were Asian people. You know, it just was what it was. Yeah. And when we had shows, it might be more black people than anybody else. Um, and that's a nice thing. But you know what? I didn't, when I went to sick of it all shows, I didn't think about the fact that there were more white faces than there were dark faces. I didn't think about that. It's New York fucking city. Because I know that in a day, I'll be going to shows where there might be black artists and there might be mixed or might be majority black people. And it is what it is. Yeah. It wasn't really segregated because it wasn't like anybody was going to deny me entrance anywhere. No one was going to deny me entrance anywhere. Understood. Right. So, and that was pretty much the same for anybody mm-hmm. in New York at that time. Um, I'm, 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 but there were definitely moments where, you know, hey, I'm sick of being around all these other people. It's always nice to have something of your own, but I didn't have any sense myself that we didn't have something of our own or could not. I didn't have any sense that we were missing anything except money and exposure. And to be honest with you, there was a whole bunch of bands, black, white, blue, green, and purple, that were all in the same boat, as far as I was concerned. So, um, now how that may have worked out for people on a more negotiated corporate level, I can't speak to, because at the time, I wasn't focused on that myself. Right, um, I was focused on what I did have, and not what I couldn't get. Just myself, just myself. You know, that's just how I dealt with that. Hmm. Um, so that was my first, I guess, running with Spooner and Afropunk. A few weeks later, he came by, and he brought me um, some of the audio from the unfinished film and asked me to uh, work on the edits for it, which I did. I don't know if you ever used those edits. Um, I don't think he credited me in the film. I don't know if he credited anybody for sound originally in the film. Um, but I never sweated that at the time, actually. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't even see the film until almost 10, 15 years after it was done. Hmm. But I did hear it. <laughs> I heard it. I just didn't see it, right? So 
I was um I was always focused on work myself. I had done some stuff in some other independent films and um I was still do producing shows and in the middle of uh playing with Shrine at the time, so there was a there was a lot going on. And I've always thought that as an artist you probably won't make it to see the art that your friends and colleagues are making. And that's part of the way it should be because that means everybody's working. They're not going to be at your shows. You're not going to be at theirs. If you happen to have an opportunity to be at them, that's fantastic and that's great. But um, you, you probably won't be able to get there because you're doing your thing and they're doing their thing. And hopefully sometimes those things cross, but oh, yeah. it's not nothing to expect. So, yeah, I didn't get to see the movie. I was still part of the website. Um, I was still part of the events. Um, there were even a couple of times I rented gear for the for the shows, but I just never got to see the movie. Okay. You know, I mean, Spooner's my man. Oh, yeah, same here. But yeah, for me it was very much um yeah, it wasn't a discovery. I guess it was sort of like the original guard slipping into the I don't know if you want to call it guard, but slipping into what just became somebody's thing that kind of grew out of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will say from what I saw and from my opinion, it's a it's a different view of punk um than I think what really existed here in New York City in general. Oh, yeah. um, and definitely a different view of punk than what I had personally experienced. Um, but I got it. I, I, I got where he was coming from. And that was his experience. And I definitely have learned to understand after, you know, other, you know, I'm blessed to know people around the country, around the planet, and have played in a lot of these places. And the scenes that they have enjoyed and experienced in their locales have all been very, very different from what goes on in New York. Hmm. The closest I could think of what of how things were going down here would be the DC and Boston scenes. And I was never, I never partook in the Boston scene. Um, but I know a lot of people from the DC scene. A lot of New Yorkers and you know, Washingtonians have like a thing. Yeah, well, you know, it's the, it's the megalopolis, the boss wash megalopolis. But, you know, Boston and New York don't seem to cross, crisscross so much. But DC and New York seem to. Um, and I can't speak to what that is specifically. Um, and, you know, some people may know this already. This is an old book at this point, but it was always a great book um, about the DC scene called Dance of Days. It's a book I love, and it was published by a Brooklyn publisher, Soft Skull Press, who I don't know if they're still in, I don't think they're still in the business. They used to be right in downtown Brooklyn a little more. And that was their, that was their, that was their, that was their spot. Um, well, it's a fantastic book, and it gives some real specifics on the scene and on shows and of individuals. Um, 
and, and it's a it's a it's an excellent book of the history of it all. I was going to say best or most interesting clients he worked with, but you know what? The dude stripping down to his fucking trunks. I don't know. I don't know how you can top that shit. Well, that wasn't a client, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, let's see. Best and most interesting clients. Wow, that's that's so hard to say. I've been blessed with so many in so many different ways. Um, Jesus. Um. I don't, I don't know, um, but okay. I mean, I guess I'll name a few things, especially on that best and most interesting. Um, one of them, and one of my favorites, is Monster Black of the Illustrious Blacks. Yeah, 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 I've heard of him. Um, me and Monster made some incredible shit back in the day, um, and it was so wild. Um, I tend to have to start off a little slow. Sometimes I don't always know what people want from me, and sometimes I'm surprised that what people want is exactly what I do, because I never really expect that. And um, we had done a number of shows in Shrine with back in the day. This is a long time ago, with Monster and with Manchild um, separately. Um, but I think at the time it was mostly with Manchild. I don't think Monster was. Um, really doing his thing then yet, but I think he was building toward it. Um, and he reached out to me, and we got together, we did a couple of things, and one day he came in, and I was in a really funky mood. When I say funky, I don't mean musical, I mean shitty. I understood. And, uh, yeah, but everybody else may not. <laughs> and um, I was in a really shitty mood, and he came in, and I said, Monster, I'm sorry, man. I just need to, you know, um, listen, I, I need to just work something out for a bit. You mind? I'm going to smoke this blunt and just just let me work. And he said, yeah, 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 do your thing. And I worked on this thing, and he was writing while I worked. And it ended up being a thing called The Moon. And I think I actually have it on SoundCloud on my – so I have – um. I actually have two or three SoundCloud um, spots for people. Um, you can get me at soundcloud.com, either World Eater NYC or Jared Hassan Foles or Shrine for the Black Madonna or Sweet Fuzzy Itsy Bitsy. Right? So there's like at least four. Um, but I think some of the stuff with Monster is either on Jared Hassan, um, Jared Hassan Foles, or it's on, it might be on World Eater NYC. Um, we ended up doing about five or six songs. I think we were supposed to do nine, but we ended up doing less. Um, and we did The Moon, and we did a track called Mr. Law which actually has a, a backward sample of, um, <laughs> it's actually got a backward sample of um, Robert, what's his name? The blues artist. Johnson? Yeah, thank you, Robert Johnson. We figured, we figured if you take Robert Johnson and you 
reverse them backwards? Do you invoke angels instead of invoking the devil? Right? Yeah. So that's that's the idea. <laughs> I like that. If you take a Satanist and you turn their stuff backwards, does it invoke God? Instead of taking somebody and spinning them backwards and invoking the Satan, it's, 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 it's stupid. But that's what we do. It's a clever <laughs> idea, though. Um, so we made a few things that were just really trippy and fantastic. Um, I don't think I put all the things out on SoundCloud that we had done back then, but I think at least those two things are there. Um, let's see. Um, one of the, probably one of the first things I ever produced for somebody was, uh, Sheena Verrett, um, also known as Tenderhead. She is now a TV personality, I believe, out of um, Georgia. Um, but she went on tour with another one of my favorites recently, Waberry Jordan. Waberry is also on the first Sweet Fuzzy Itsy Bitsy EP, um, singing on a track that ironically helped that EP get onto the jazz charts, which is a shock. So still a shot down the Reverb Nation jazz charts, and for a little while, um, hold on a second, I'm looking up a name here. Um, one second, I gotta find something here. Um, oh, that's fine. Um, so. The Sweet Fuzzy, the first Sweet Fuzzy Itsy Bitsy EP was actually charted on the Reverb Nation charts. It charted for three weeks higher than Bill Withers, which shocked the fuck out of me. Apparently, they decided to put it in the jazz genre because of the song on that EP that what Barry Jordan is singing. And I wrote the lyrics and all the music for it, but she sung it and, and speaks it. And it's fantastic. Um, and it's called Sunday Night Suicides on the Sweet Fuzzy Itsy Bitsy first EP, um, which is What Do You Know About Revolution? And she was always fantastic to work with. Um, I'm trying to think of this. There are so many, actually. Um, here's this one band that... Um, was a lot of people in this band and the studio well it's two floors now but the time was just one floor and so it was really kind of crazy having all these people in here all at once a band called lonesome jack um and i did uh did an album for them um really trippy kind of speedy poppy stuff it's pretty old at this point, um, but they were a really happy-go-lucky bunch, and having them in here was really a lot of fun. Um, but some of the best stuff um, was uh, some stuff I did with Game Rebellion, which, for those who may not know, Game Rebellion is the band that Afropunk was built off of, literally on their backs. True. Uh, some of those members are now in Meridian Lights, um, 
and some of those members were actually in a band called Free Era, who I used to book a lot, and at one point I asked them to manage them, but I chose not to. Um, so one night, they came in here, and we recorded something that they did, not with Netic, the vocalist, actually. Um, they did it with Khalil Al-Mustafa on vocals, um, doing a poem, but it was them, you know, behind it. This was when T-Bone was still playing jumps for them. T-Bone is now with Public Enemy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. T-Bone model, right? Yeah, so this is a good fucking story. I'll make this really quick. So, um, me and Khalil are at the desk. At the time, the mixing desk was in the front of the room, and everything was all in the same room. We're about a control booth now and the whole deal or whatever, so it's all separated. But at the time, everything except the vocals were in the same room. But we're going over some overdubs, and everybody's, you know, getting loose. We've been there a long time. It's getting late. And we had a couch in the middle of the room that at the time, Emmy was sitting on and just chilling, I think, rolling a blunt. Not even more than anything. I don't remember really really what was happening because they were sitting behind us. But anybody that knows T-Bone knows that T-Bone talks a lot of shit. <laughs> and him and Emmy got into talking about some sort of shit. And T-Bone said, man, I'll super, I'll fly over there and suplex your ass right now. Oh, shit. Now, me and Khalil are not really paying attention, but we hear it. And I think we hear Emmy suggest that he doesn't really believe that T-Bone would do such a thing. Oh, shit. All I know is that we hear somebody say, oh, shit. <laughs> and we turn around, and T-Bone is in the sky. <laughs> he has launched himself from behind the drum set and literally taken flight all the way across the room <laughs> to where Emmy and the couch is and lands on Emmy and destroys the entire couch with Emmy. What the fuck? That's was the it's so funny you said the fuck. Because that was the look on Khalil's face when he looked at me. And I looked at him, and I didn't say a word. I just looked at him with a stone face. I didn't, I didn't say a word. I just looked at him. And Khalil looked at that, and he looked at me, and he said real quietly, I'll get you another couch, man. Just, it's all right. I'll get you another couch. And I just nodded and turned my face back to the screen. And we just kept on working. <laughs> you were professional as hell, man. I'm going to tell you. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. There was just nothing that could be said. Don't get me wrong. I thought it was fucking hilarious what happened. It's just that it had to happen to my couch in my place. There was nothing to say. I just got to it. You know what? That's the thing. I got to enjoy the moment. Nobody realizes how much I enjoyed the moment because I didn't say anything. But I didn't have to say anything. If I had said something, I probably wouldn't have got the free couch replaced. True. They don't know what I they don't know what I paid for that couch or how I got that couch. 
And I'll be honest with you, that couch that he landed on, that he destroyed, that couch was a piece of shit. The couch that I got was a little bit better than a piece of shit. Not a lot better, but a little bit better. So what was there to say? I didn't have to say anything. <laughs> right? Yeah. The universe took care of me, and everything took care of itself. And sometimes you just have to just believe that what you're supposed to have is, you know, everything. Well, I was about to ask, tell us about a typical day of recording, but fuck that one. My question right now, because I'm, all right, as you probably can tell by as long as you've known me, I've always had kind of a, eh, I've always had an ear for or an intrigue by recording, right? So, was that one band with a lot of members? Wasn't it Jack something? What was it again? That was Lonesome Jack. They weren't the only ones, but they were, that was, that they had a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> How would you record a band like that? I'm just curious. Well, there's so many different ways, you know, I, but at the time I had to record as much for space as I did for sound. Um, so I would tend to do, well, I'll tell you how I recorded that band. With that band, I recorded the main body of parts first. So drums, bass, guitar, vocals, um, we got that down. And horns, we overdubbed the horns later. Um, any other particular overdub that had to be done, either vocals or guitar, we did that later on. But we do the main body of stuff first. And the funny thing is because a lot of these bands didn't have a lot of money, they tend to have to try and rush things. Um, let me put it to you like this. Back in the day, now, when I say back in the day, it really wasn't that long ago. And the way people are recording now is really no different than how I was recording then. The equipment is the same, um, except that things are probably a little bit upgraded, but I was blessed to be, I guess you could say, on the forefront of digital recording. Now, when I say the forefront, I don't mean that I'm a pioneer or no shit. Because I wasn't building this shit, right? But I was part of some of the first digital recording that people are doing in their homes. The only difference was I'm not doing it in I'm doing it in my home, but it's not home recording. I'm literally doing professional stuff, professional mics, cables all over the place, wires, drum sets, gear, um, hyped up custom computers. Um, and, you know, in a, a treated space. Um, not super duper treated because I, what I really blew money on were the microphones. Um, so I used a lot of super cardioid mics in order to reduce reflections, especially in a room. So I'm getting a lot of direct source sounds. Um, and the room was treated um, so a lot of hemisote we used at the time. Vocals are in a separate room. They're in the booth. Um, and actually, what we would do is we would record the drums live in the room. So the drums are mic'd up, but the guitars, the basses, those are all going in direct. And even though we have um, a triple, uh, at the time a dual rectifier head and cabinet, but now we got the triple as well. And um, we got a Fender Champion, which is fantastic. Um, 
we always record the initial tracks with uh, everything going in direct so that we can get the drums. If you get the drums recorded right and you practically perfectly, everything else falls into place fantastically. Right? But the drums take up the most space sonically. And the drums really want to give you, will really give you the sound of the room. You still get the sound of the room when you mic the amps from guitar and stuff like that, but those mics are mostly getting guitar sound. They're not getting so much room sound. And they're going to be getting is the sound of the guitar in the room, but you're not getting room spatial sound like you will with the drums. With the drums, you're getting the spatial sound of the room as well as the drums. So it's much more important to kind of mix that in like that. And then, of course, with the horns, in a lot of ways, the horns are like drums in as much as, in as, much as you're focused on the sound of the horns, you're also focused on the sound of the horns in the space and how it works together like with the drums. So, you know, they'll all be recorded in the same space. The horns will be recorded in the same space with the drums, just not at the same time as the drums. But at least you've got the same spatial tonality going on. Um, and so that's how I did that. Um, and to a certain degree, um, I still do things similarly, unless I'm recording something live. Now, the second floor in here is a much larger space. Um, but it's also tends to be a bit airier and reflective on the second floor than it is downstairs. Um, when we rebuilt the place after the fire, we rebuilt the downstairs with um, soundproof sheetrock instead of hemisote. Um, but we did the second floor in some more reflective materials purposely. So up here, it's... Um, it's got some hemisope behind the wall, but on top of that, we got some pegboard, which sounds like some really kind of old school poor man treatment shit. And it kind of is, but the ceiling is, well, the ceiling used to be this soft cloth material that we used to have up there. And, you know, it made things a little flat. So the whole place has been redone since we had the fire in 2011. And that really changed the sound of things. So we had to start mixing and recording a little bit differently toward this, you know, because the space sounded different. But it made things a little bit brighter. Um, but the second floor space, which is larger, got more reflective. So we don't tend to necessarily do drums up here, even though we can. Um, and when we do, um, we tend to uh, do more live things up here. So we can record everything all at once, but it's still, again, more cardioid mics. Um, there's very little gain. We turn those mics in there all the way down because it's, so, it, it's reflective enough that you don't need to add any extra gain to the mics. Um, and so it kind of comes out really nice and even. As a matter of fact, one of the... So here's another great session. So... Um, um, John Mark Santel came here one day to uh, record guitars, and we recorded him here in the upstairs space. Um, 
there's some video of it, but I don't know if I actually put those videos out anywhere, to be honest with you. Um, you might see a snippet of it here or there in a couple of ads that we did use that in, but um, he brought some he brought some gear with him. Brought um, an orange head. At the time, people love orange stuff. I have to say, I don't really know why. And I'm not trying to diss orange per se. You know, orange has got a classic name and all that sort of stuff. But I think that they are a little pricey for what they put out. And I think that's because of, I think they're banking on their history. Um, but I, but sonically, I, I tend to think that they sound a little thin. And Jean came in and he brought his orange head and we recorded a couple of tracks with that um, on the second floor. Um, and, you know, it had a decent sound, but it just didn't sound smooth enough. And I had him switch to the triple rectifier. And then we had the triple rectifier head and cabinet. And he used the triple rec for the rest of the session. And the triple rec in this space with him just ripping it up, oh man, I mean, it was like a cathedral in here. It was, it was incredible. It was fantastic. Um, I used, I think I used a Super Cardio mic, but I think I gave it a little bit of space, so it really kind of got some of the room sound because we could focus on that then in this space here. Um, what did I use? I can't remember off the top of my head what mics I use. Um, but at some point, if anybody cares about it, I tell you what, if people send me an email and they ask me, I will share the video of John Mark Santel when we're recording him in here and what it sounds like. And it's 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 fucking incredible. Sounds dope because I I, I like how you touched on it earlier about when I'm recording drums for for rehearsal, right? I'm I try to record stuff like it's not like an old classic rock record, so no more than four mics on the drums, and the room is kind of dead, right? Like the reason why because if I wanted to add some reverb to it, it won't be like such a pain in the ass. Part of the reason I made things a bit airier was so that I wouldn't have to use process reverb so much. I wanted the real sound of a room and its reflections. Um, and I, I don't worry about bleed like I did when I first started. I try and use bleed. It's just a matter of what bleeds into what and when. So if everything's being recorded at once, it's not so much of an issue. Right? But if it's being recorded on separate times. So if I'm recording drums and bass in one day and recording guitars another day, then bleep becomes a bit weird because even though it may be in the same space, the timing isn't necessarily the same of what's happening in the air of the room. And I want those things able to match up because what you want at the end of the day is to sound like one specific type performance, everything happening all the time. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't always matter. Sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. 
It depends on what you're making and how you're expecting it to come out. Um, but, you know, in those particular moments, um, that sometimes matters to me in how these reverb reflections sound um, when they're happening all together as opposed to when they're being overdubbed and then mashed together. Um, but for the most part, um, anything that allows me to use less digital tools is always the way to go. And for, so it's, it's even part of the reason why I use some of the gear that I use. I prefer Mark of the Unicorn stuff. Um, I have about five or six of the original 896s. And the main thing about them is that they're really, really colorless. Um, and they use actual, you know, I don't have to use DB25 cables into that box. I'm actually going directly in there with cables. And actually, that's not how we're set up anymore. I used to do that originally. But now, so I don't know if I've updated the website with the current gear list. But we actually are using a 48-track console in here. Um, and everything goes into that. It's, a, it's the Mackie 4880 Onyx. So everything's going into that, and then we send it into the Moto units before it gets into anything else. Um, and then, depending on the client, depending on the project, we'll actually play that stuff back into the board and then do another mix directly out of the board into a two-channel a two, a two stereo mix. So we got the ability to just be in the box, but we tend to go through the mixer and then into the box. And then we could actually come down to a master out of that. But sometimes what we'll do is we'll play that back into the board and then come out of uh, provide two tracks of recorded um, stereo back into the system to get more of that meat of that sound out of the board before and make that and we'll make that a master and then we'll take that into mastering because we do master here as well. Um, so we have options, you know, and. We have options for everybody and every price range because not everybody can afford to do everything and not everybody wants to, right? That's the trick, so. Um, I mean, worst comes to worst, and anybody wants to be outside, we can take them to the backyard and record them out there, too. <laughs> All right, so how'd you get an engineering in live sound anyway? Just I hated what cats were doing with my music. They were trying to make me sound like everybody else. Um, I was going to studios where these engineers didn't really give a fuck. These young black cats doing this rock, well, they must want to sound like, you know, everybody else doing it, which is like the fuck. They wouldn't put any real work into it. They weren't doing bad. They just didn't know to give a fuck. And why would they give a fuck? They're doing this every day. They didn't think they were working on anything big, but they were taking my money. Not somebody else's money. And they really didn't think that we were anything special. Um, 
and I'm not saying that because they thought it was negatively. What I'm literally saying is that they didn't think they didn't think that we were attached to some big label or some big name that they knew because they didn't know us. So why would they give a fuck, right? Not blaming them for it, but like I said, I expect everything. And so they literally were mixing and operating as if there was nothing special to go on here. And one thing I know about any endeavor is that if you treat it that way, you will get exactly what you're looking for. One thing I've learned about mixing in particular is that mixing is the song on top of the song. The greatest song in the world would end up sounding like shit, not because the mix is bad, but because real work hasn't been put into the mix and somebody isn't really thinking about the mix on that level. If they're just trying to just get through the day and get to their job and get to the next job, and it's a regular old thing, then they're going to make a great song sound like a regular old thing. And I didn't fucking want that at all. Not for my shit. That was not going to give me the best chance to get the attention that I was looking for, at least for the music, so that I could actually make a real living and be taken, taken seriously, let alone be able to compete for anything. I mean, listen, I hope that one day I can compete. I'm still of the mindset that I'm competing for a Grammy. Not because I want a Grammy. Right? I could give a shit about Grammy, for example. But if I'm going to be doing this, then I'm trying to compete on that level with the best of the best. At least sonically. You know, um, the music, that's, you know, that's, that's another story. The music is, uh, that's subjective. But the engineering is not necessarily subjective. It is, but it isn't. So I wanted that for myself. And what I discovered was that the only way that I was going to get that myself was for me to pursue it. Um, at least to a point where I could inform, instruct, or even make demands of others who may end up working or mixing my stuff. <clears throat> That's how I got into it. Um, the other side of that is, to, to a certain degree to me, what an artist is, is an individual who doesn't just do one aspect of a thing, they actually encompass as many aspects of the thing as they can because being able to manipulate those things is what makes an artist out of them. So, and that's just me. You know, I've, I've never been used to doing just one thing. Um, so I couldn't just be the guitarist. I was also the songwriter, but then that can just be the songwriter. I ended up being the one that actually produced the shows, but I couldn't just be the one that produced the shows. I had to be the one that, you know, managed the project. And that wasn't out of some megalomania. It was because the situation that I was in, if any of these things were going to happen and going to happen in a serious way, unfortunately, I was the only one in the position to do it. And that's just that's literally just what it was. Um, the people I had around me, they could do what they could do, and they were helpful in some way, but they just weren't in a position to do the other things, and I was. And if I didn't do those things at the time, 
none of us would have been able to do anything, including me. Um, and then once we got a little bit past that, we were able to find people and I, um, to, like, you know, spread that work out a little bit at the time, ironically. I think that's what helped people take me and people I was around seriously. So I was able to find managers. I was able to find people who would do the, you know, the posters and things like that. Um, even though later on, it eventually all fell back on me again. So, um, and it's weird. It's, 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 and it's funny. It's weird for me to talk about it because it does sound like megalomania, and I understand that, and I understand there are people who are like that. But I've never been the person who wanted to do all these things because it literally got in the way of the one thing that I got into the stuff to do, which was to play guitar and write songs. But I literally ended up owning a studio because that was the least expensive way to get my bands to rehearse and get our stuff recorded. And the best way at the time because of what we were experiencing with engineers and other studios. Um, and it, it became a, a way of cutting costs. You know, initially it was expensive getting not just any gear, but real good right gear so that, you know, we could be, we weren't just playing with ourselves, right? But eventually, in the long run, it was cheaper. Um, I eventually did have to be the one to create the posters. And ironically, some of my posters ended up in a couple of books years later. Um, Ed, photographer Ed Marshall put out a book, and um, one of my posters, I think the one of the first shows that he came to take pictures at, my poster is in his book. And I think that's a funk face show with Pillow Theory. I don't know if Tamar Colley's on that show. Um, but it's in his book, Ed Marshall. Um, fantastic photographer. Yeah, he is great. Um, so it's all a little ironic. I end up doing all this different stuff. And I will say it has a cost because I definitely feel like I haven't put out as much music as I would have otherwise if I wasn't if I didn't end up doing all of these different things. Um, and I guess I can't lament it because the blessing is that we got to do all these things and I got to see and be a part of all the stuff which I have all these crazy stories about. And if I was only just playing guitar and writing the songs, it wouldn't seem quite so varied and crazy or whatever. Um, but ironically, it's um, it's helped me live a life that, for the most part, has only been attached to the things I've wanted to do. And that's 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 the real blessing of it for me personally. Um, my intention was to only do music and live my life doing that. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've had to negotiate those things here and there. But what I didn't have to do was negotiate myself out of what I wanted to do. But I will say, for the, it took a very long time for me to be able to get and make a living in this field. 
And I really wasn't able to do that until I literally made my own job. So that that and that that's the the thing about all this. When I when I was doing all of that different work, cr literally created me doing my own job in this and opening my own business. And I didn't make a great deal of money, but I made enough money to be able to keep doing it. And that literally, and the skill set that I acquired because of it, not the skill set that I have, because I didn't have any fucking skills when I started it, <laughs> right? It's, it's all because of the experience. It directly led me to the United Nations. And then it directly led me to J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, literally still doing the same thing. Because people don't realize that J.P. Morgan Chase has their own broadcast network and facility. Why would they have that? That's another story altogether. Um, but, but these are the things that it's taken me into. Right? So, ironically, working for the very ones that I've worked to kind of take down, that's kind of weird, right? But that's because the world has unfortunately given those entities the power and the ability to produce things in the way that we all work to produce them, except that they didn't put the power in the hands of the musicians like they should have. They ended up putting the power right back into the ones they, they themselves complain about. And now those are the ones that actually have the ability to do the stuff. And they're doing it more than the broadcast networks. But now those guys call me. So it's, uh, it's a little weird, but I figure it's safer to take as much money out of their hands as possible because it's dangerous if it, lay, if it stays in their hands. It's much safer for that money to be in my hands. Right. So. So when did you start World Eater anyway? Uh, November 2000. Hmm. So this November, if we can get there, God willing, will be 20 years. Sweet. <sighs> But, you know, I'm with you on that because at the end of the day, you know exactly what you're trying to do. Of course, it's good to have help, too, because there's certain aspects that you might not be able to pull off. I'm kind of talking to myself, too. But if you want to get some, if you want to go far, you go with other people. And I've always tried to go far and take people with me. I have learned that you can't take everybody with you because not everybody's supposed to go with you. And that's, that's my path. That's my path. I've had to do a lot of things by myself and on my own. And I think that a lot of my path is still going to be like that. But it's not because I've looked to do it alone. I've never looked to do it alone. I've always looked for other people to do it with. But admittedly, I have tried to keep that as a very small world, to be honest with you. Um, and there is a specific group of people I've always looked to take to go along that path with me. 
and I'm and I think because I've kept my focus really narrow, it's really limited those people. In some ways that's good, and in some ways it's made things a bit more difficult and take a bit longer. Um, but it is what it is, and who's to say that that's how it's going to keep going going forward, right? Because I'm still doing it. I'm doing it in different ways now, but I'm still doing it. I haven't stopped. The studio is still open. We're still making music, even though admittedly during this entire COVID thing, I've been taking a break. <laughs> you know, like, a well-deserved one, too, you know, because, like, right now I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I keep the name of Genius Techno out there? And so that was the one podcast. The other podcast we're going to call Where's Jenny with, you know, my lead singer, Danielle. And, you know, just working on that. But also the main one, too, is, you know, I had to rename this one because the other one that the missus thought of, it's, um, you know, it's in use. So I got to, but I've been doing this, I realized I know a lot of cool motherfuckers, right? So I was like, wait, yeah. let, me, let me hit up Jared about some stuff, too. Let me hit up so-and-so. Let me hit up whoever, you know. So right now it's me kind of like taking a break from what I usually do, um, you know, scream like a headless chicken and be neurotic and just start talking to people I've always dug, you know, like, you know, like I've known you since like the old Afropunk board days, right? I've learned a lot of cool stuff from you, you know, but one thing I've been trying to figure out though, was this you or, um, oh, I can't remember his name, but his name's Emmanuel, right? I could have sworn that he, but he lived in New York and did some engineering stuff too, right? I can't remember if it was you or him, but did you work with Steely Dan? No, not me. Oh, okay. So but was... ironically, I do know someone that's played with Steely Dan who's done work for me. Um, and he was working for me a couple of years ago as one of the crew. I was building out some stages for some shows. Um, with another company, Gary Bird. And Gary Bird has done some recording with um, 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 the Cats from Steely Dan. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Wait, did you work with Jules Santana? Me, no. Okay. Damn. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> All right, so, because I remember it was an engineer from New York who told the story on the old Afropunk board. And I was like, wow, Joel Santana sounds like a dick. And also, but it wasn't as far as about Steely Dan, actually, because, you know, I put it this way. They knew what they wanted. Sure. All right. Well, Jared, great talking to you. Honored yeah, man, you too, dude. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. No problem. All right. Great chatting with you. Peace. Yeah, let me know when it's uh, out and ready and do some other talks, too, whatever. All right, sure. No problem. All right, man. All right. Later. Peace. Thanks again, Jared. Check out Jared Sonfold's band's Shrine for the Black Madonna, Sweet Fuzzy Itsy Bitsy, and his new podcast, F-Yo Couchcast on Spotify. That's E-F-F-Y-O Couchcast on Spotify. Thanks for listening.